Hello and welcome to the Berkeley Remix, a podcast from the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library at the University of California, Berkeley. I'm Martin Meeker, director of the center. Founded in 1954, the center records and preserves the history of California, the nation, and our interconnected world. This season, we're bringing to life stories about our home, UC Berkeley, from our collection of thousands of oral history interviews. Please join us for our fourth season, inspired by the university's motto, Let There Be Light, 150 Years at UC Berkeley. The third and final episode of this season, Berkeley After Dark, was produced by Shanna Farrell. When you think of Berkeley, you might think of revolution. From the free speech movement to apartheid divestment to the recent protests on the UC Berkeley campus, the university has a reputation for fighting the power. But the university campus isn't the only site of revolution in Berkeley. Just a few blocks away, the gourmet ghetto is home to a very different type of revolution, a delicious one. Take it from food writer Chris Ying. What Alice Waters and the Chez team did was probably the most radical gesture in, in restaurants and cooking in America in the last century. Figures like her and acts like that do have a lot to do with where they take place. I think that it's important that it happened at Berkeley. Chez Panisse is a legendary California restaurant that opened in 1971. It's located in an iconic A-frame style craft house just a few blocks north of campus on Shattuck Avenue. It was founded by Paul Aritau and Alice Waters, and she's the one who made the restaurant famous. They had an idea that was both radical and simple. They wanted to serve food that was grown locally, organically, and sustainably using classic French cooking techniques. They believed fresh seasonal ingredients should be the star of any dish. This concept may not seem revolutionary now, but then it was. This was the 70s, a time when canned vegetables were everywhere and TV dinners were king. But it had such an enlightened approach and it was Alice's vision that built upon French food with local ingredients. Her brilliance was to say, hey, we're here in California and there's all this wonderful stuff here. Use it and cook with it. That was Chef Christopher Lee, who recorded an interview with the Oral History Center in 2004. He worked at Chez Panisse for over 10 years, learning how to cook in a way that highlighted California's rich agricultural produce. For Alice Waters, who founded the restaurant, eating is a political act. She's written about this in her many cookbooks, 16 to be exact, and the memoir that she published in 2017 called Coming to My Senses. Waters grew up in New Jersey and arrived in Berkeley as a college student in the mid-1960s. She transferred from UC Santa Barbara during a moment of unrest. She quickly got caught up in the free speech movement and started working for anti-Vietnam War politician Robert Scheer. Here's food writer Marion Cunningham from our 2001 interview with her, as read by Amanda Tweez. I came to know Alice early on. She belonged to a group of people who were rebelling against the university, politically. They had an underground letter, a political letter. She was looking for a place because these people had no money, and she was worried about how they were going to eat. That was the motivator. Waters had traveled abroad to France during her junior year, where she learned about food and cooking. She'd gone to farmer's markets and learned about the way that French culture approaches food. This experience inspired Waters when she returned to Berkeley. 
She wanted to bring the food that she'd fallen in love with in France back to her own community in the East Bay, and she wanted it to be accessible across barriers, especially financial ones. She began cooking dinners for friends, then circulating that underground political letter Marion Cunningham mentioned. Waters was looking for a place to build her vision. Chez Panisse opened in 1971, and it soon attracted other like-minded revolutionaries and chefs. My nose led me there. I could smell really good stock being made. I could smell that there was something good going on. Really good. It was the smell of the place that attracted me, mostly. That was Paul Bertoli, James Beard award-winning chef and writer, from the Oral History Center's 2004 interview with him, as read by John Fergola. Bertoli got a start in the Chez Panisse kitchen before going on to be the executive chef at Oakland's Oliveto. Bertoli says when Waters launched Chez Panisse in 1971, she put flavor first. She bought all her food in season from organic farmers within 50 miles of the restaurant. You know, it was it was so radical and so different from what other people were doing and so bold. It's important that, you know, the, the legacy of kind of radical thought and free speech that people associate with Berkeley really play a part in, in her being able to do that at Chez Panisse and you know, the larger Bay Area, too. Like, I think that, like, the Bay Area is home to a lot of innovation because of that that spirit. That's Chris Ying, food writer and co-founder of the late Lucky Peach magazine, as well as a Cal alum. We sat down recently to talk about Berkeley's culinary legacy. When Chez Panisse started, people weren't talking about where food was coming from or how it was grown. At the time, most restaurants relied on third-party vendors that are typically delivered in bulk by distributors. They didn't have direct relationships with the farmers who supplied their food. Waters was trying to change all that. Waters cultivated individual relationships with some of the best producers around. Here's Dylan O'Brien, who interned in the Chez Panisse kitchen in the early 2000s while bartending next door at Cesar, a restaurant in the Chez Panisse family. He now owns Prize Fighter, a bar in Emeryville, California, that's just a short drive from Shattuck Avenue. I mean, that was such a cool experience because it's such a beautiful kitchen that's it couldn't exist in, in any restaurant that was built today and you know the incredible ingredients and the number of purveyors they worked with was like totally mind-blowing to me that some guy would show up with a box you know the size of a shoe box with 15 persimmons that were like the greatest persimmons that had ever been grown they get lettuces from some guy who lives in the berkeley hills who just grows the coolest lettuces. Great food needs an audience, and the people of Berkeley were there to provide. In 1970, undergraduate enrollment hit 73,000, bringing lots of hungry people to Berkeley. Here's Paul Bertoli again, talking about taking advantage of the affordable midnight dinners that Waters ran for a few months in 1974, as read by John Fergola. I came to Cal the same year that Chez Panisse opened. I ate there frequently. I remember when the menu was $4. I went to the midnight steak and red wine feeds. Of course, to anyone familiar with Chez Panisse, these cheap student dinners might sound incredible. A meal there today could cost $100 per person instead. So what changed? 
Chez Panisse served meals to students for next to nothing until the restaurant lost so much money that Waters was forced to stop. But by then, the restaurant was attracting a different clientele. Parents of students looking for a nice place to bring their children, and professors in need of a place to either impress or unwind. These guests gave Chez Panisse a steady stream of customers with disposable income. Narcy David, a chef who has worked in the Bay Area since the 1970s, attributes the type of professionals that Berkeley attracts to the restaurant's success. Here he is in a 2011 interview with the Oral History Center. Well, I think it's a lot more than just food. I think in Berkeley, first, you can't escape the fact that you have a very, very liberal, very highly educated, very sophisticated town with the history of the university and the Lawrence Lab up on the hill and these, these businesses in West Berkeley that depended on uh, scientists and, uh, and technicians who, who had engineering skills and laboratory skills. There was a pretty sophisticated bunch of people around here. Suddenly, Chez Panisse wasn't just a restaurant with a unique approach to local ingredients. It was gathering attention as a fine dining establishment filled with academic elites. Here's Christopher Lee again. The joke was, even the dishwashers at Chez Panisse have PhDs. And it was kind of funny at one point because there were three bussers who were PhD candidates. While the original mission of feeding hungry college students was shifting, that didn't mean UC Berkeley's campus community was being left behind. Fortunately, Chez Panisse's location on the fringe of the Berkeley campus meant there was a steady supply of student workers. Students needed to work to pay for their education at Berkeley. In 1975, tuition was free for Californians, but by the end of the decade, it was rising sharply. Today, tuition costs almost $15,000 for undergraduate in-state residents and about $43,000 for out-of-state residents. On top of tuition, there's books, food, and housing to pay for in a city where the cost of living is among the highest in the country. Since the 1970s, students like Chris Ying and Christopher Lee have been drawn to Berkeley restaurant jobs where tips are often paid in cash and there's free food before the start of a shift. Ying says he was also drawn to the late hours, perfect for a college student's schedule. You know, I, I went to school until 3 or 4 and then went straight to the restaurant and just worked <laughs> all night long. And here's Dylan O'Brien again, talking about his restaurant job when he was a student around the same time as Ying in the early 2000s. I mean, I was making 150 to $250 in tips. You know, I worked every Friday and Saturday night. You know, my friends were out partying or going to the football game on Saturday, and I wasn't because I had to go to work. Narcy David also turned to restaurant work when he was a student at Cal in the 1960s. Through my college years, I worked at High's Drive-In at uh, Mel's drive-in, I was working, I think it was 30 hours a week. I mean, it was a, a substantial thing, but, but I didn't have any choice. And, and I would send money home to my mother even when I was working uh, up here. There was no way I could have made it otherwise. Berkeley's growing restaurant industry has become a staple of student employment. And Chez Panisse was once again at the center of this change. Christopher Lee says Waters insisted on paying her employees fairly. 
Yeah, and Alice, that was always one of her mandates, was that she wanted to offer people a, a livable wage, whereas a lot of places didn't in the old days. As a result, many student workers fell in love with the restaurant industry during their time at Cal. Again, here's Chris Ying. I started to see Cal not as just a school. You started to see it as representative of something, uh, an important player in something. Seeing you know, how much of a role Berkeley and the attitude around Berkeley played in food, as food was becoming more important to me, really gave me this deeper appreciation for where I was. This growing appreciation for food and community helped launch the careers of other influential people in the food world around the country. Many of them opened restaurants nearby, bringing more eateries close to campus. San Francisco Chronicle journalist Herb Kane even coined a term, the gourmet ghetto, in his column to describe the wave of restaurants opening on Shattuck Avenue that shared water's socially conscious approach to food. Again, here's Narcy David. Ah, the gourmet ghetto. He was joking about how the word ghetto, only in a place like Berkeley, uh, could the word ghetto uh, apply to uh, something like food. The gourmet ghetto, uh, in and about the uh, environs of Chez Panisse, Shattuck, uh, between cedar and um, vine. Again, here's Chris Ying. As far as the influential Berkeley chefs, you know, obviously it's Alice Waters and Jeremiah Tower, Paul Bertoli, the people who often get credited as having started this California cuisine movement. You know, there's so many players that descend from there, whether it's, you know, like Cal Petternell, who was uh, part of the Chez Panisse family, or Stephen Singer, who has become like, became like a very important wine importer and, and a, a huge figure in, in the Berkeley world. Everything started with Chez Panisse, though. As, as far as I understood it, Chez Panisse was the best and most important restaurant in the world, and it happened to be down the street from us. Chez Panisse's radical impact is hard to measure. The concept of eating local, seasonal, and organic food, which grew out of Alice Waters' combined love of feeding people and political activism, evolved into a culinary revolution. Her restaurant changed the way that we think about food and how we cook at home. It launched the careers of renowned chefs like Paul Bertoli and Christopher Lee. It inspired countless chefs to model their own restaurants after farm-to-table eating, which is now cultural currency. And it couldn't have happened without UC Berkeley. The intertwined history between campus and the community gave Chez Panisse an audience and a workforce, creating a symbiotic relationship. This relationship continues today, evident when you walk into a restaurant near campus after dark, long after the sun has set. This episode was written and narrated by Shanna Farrell, with assistance from Amanda Tuiz, Francesca Fenzi, and Oral History Center staff. The Berkeley Remix theme music by Paul Burnett and additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to the Bancroft Library. Interviews in this episode are from the Oral History Center collections. To learn more about these interviews, visit our website listed in the show notes. I'm Martin Meeker. Thank you for listening to the Berkeley Remix, and please join us next time.